Seems like there's a lot of impediments in this world that stand in God's way. And often we find ourselves, even as his people, trying to fix his little problems. And we sometimes wonder what he's been doing this whole time until we showed up. I mean, 2,000 years ago, he did say, his son risen from the dead, go make disciples of all the nations. And here we are 2,000 years later and been pretty slow progress, especially when we look around and do the math and see about 2 billion of today's world inhabitants have yet to hear the gospel. Our job is not to fix God's little problems. He doesn't have any problems, little or big. Uh, Last week, a hurricane struck the coast of Florida, all kind of devastation. Our church has been receiving a few updates from a sister church down there that really was pummeled physically. And so those natural disasters and sometimes man-made disasters, they seem like they're in the way of what God's doing. 9-11 would be a man-made. Hurricane Ian would be a natural kind of a God-made, if you will, disaster. In the book of Joshua, there's all kind of impediments, natural and man-made. There's a Jordan River, that's a problem. There's a wall of Jericho, that's a problem. That's natural, if you will, and that's man-made. But there actually is no impediment that slows the progress of God's purposes. They actually support His purposes. Nothing stands in the way of God. He is accomplishing all of his good pleasure all the time. You are no match for God, and the whole world, according to Psalm 2, is no match for him if everybody conspired together to war against him. He who sits on the throne of heaven, we're told in Psalms, just laughs. Well, I say that to try to frame today's passage to help us reckon with the reality that when God intends to move, there is no obstacle that will prevent him. But I also want to frame the passage in a way that I think many of you are already sensitized to. Some of you are more biblically immersed than others. Let us all help one another from wherever we're at to take one step forward toward Jesus today. Today's passage, as some do know, and some will soon find out, has some really heavy sledding. That familiar phrase, heavy sledding, is when we must travel a road that's not easy. The reality of Joshua chapter 6, which we will read along the way of our sermon in little portions instead of all at once at the beginning. Joshua chapter 6 begins some really heavy sledding. It's a problem passage of the Bible. From chapter 6 through chapter 12, it's the meat of the book of Joshua. When all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan are killed or driven out, all we will define in a moment. Beginning with the destruction of Jericho in today's passage, going all the way through chapter 12, 31 different kings systematically destroyed. People killed. Warfare, death, 
the successful victory over, as I mentioned, 31 kings capturing their cities by Israel is what we find in Joshua 6 through 12. Chapter 10, Israel sweeps through the south of Canaan. Chapter 11, Israel sweeps through the north of Canaan. There is no place that is not conquered. To put it bluntly, in our text for today, verse 21 says, They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. How can that be? God doesn't have any obstacles. That's where I started But we should be asking ourselves some questions. How how can it be? I mean, can you follow a God who does that? The introduction to the book of Joshua study notes in the ESV Bible say, the accountant Joshua presents the sensitive reader with a deep problem. Namely, the apparently wholesale slaughter of the indigenous Canaanite population in order to allow the people of Israel to occupy their land. How did Israel have any right to seize that land? How can it be God's will for them to spare none who resisted them in defense of their own land? Could this be a level of barbarism that God tolerated in the Old Testament? But he now forbids it in the New Testament, the age-old quandary. Isn't the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament presented just a little differently? Those questions rise for careful Bible readers for good reason. In this section of Joshua, we find the reason that many Bible readers turn away from Christianity. It's these chapters of the Bible that precipitated the writing of entire books by titles of Bible uh, Bible believers with titles like this. Is God a Moral Monster? It's the title of a book. God and the Canaanite Genocide, Show Them No Mercy, the title of another book. Mass Destruction, Is God Guilty of Genocide? Another book. The Skeletons in God's Closet, The Mercy of Hell, and The Surprising Judgment and Hope of Holy War. If you've never read those books, if you've never wrestled with the intricacies of the arguments that are made by those authors, if you've read the book of Joshua, and then you read the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you might find yourself asking the age-old question, is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? without considering some of the important distinctions between the Old and the New Covenants. Some, like Constantine in the fourth century, concluded that God does want his people to employ the exact same pattern that we find in the book of Joshua. In this name, conquer, the Crusades became, in Constantine's justification, a replication of the Old Testament Canaanite conquest. The Bible's not an emotionless book. If it doesn't stir some kind of deep swirl of emotion in your soul, please reread it. As we often say around here, the best way to mess up what we think about God is to read our Bible. And I want to encourage you today to do what we also often say, talk to your Bible. Why do you say it that way? That's not what I expected you to say next. That's not who I was thinking that you are, God. Is that verse supposed to be in your book? In today's sermon, Joshua chapter 6, 
we see a literary parallel to a passage we've already encountered, Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 6 is about the fall of the walls of Jericho. Joshua chapter 3 is about the waters of the Jordan standing up. We're going to engage in some seriously heavy sledding. Not only today, but in the weeks to come, all the way up to chapter 12, the conquest narrative. I hope to faithfully preach it. That's my prayer. And I also hope to spend a good chunk of today's sermon dealing with the questions of the conquest of Canaan that we're going to face today and in the weeks to come. Our sermon text, as I mentioned, will be Joshua 6. We will read it instead of one long reading at the beginning. We will read it in portions as we move along. First, let's ask again for God to help us. Join me at the throne of grace in prayer. Father, this little collection of people has such a wide range of current spiritual questions. Some wonder if Christianity is true. Some have named the name of Christ for a long time, only now to find themselves not so sure. Others are thriving in their fellowship with Jesus. Our prayer, Lord, is that through Joshua 6, through the biblical realities that we consider today, our prayer, Lord, I'll even personalize my prayer, anything I say that is faithful to your word, would you cause it to help your people? Anything I say that's unfaithful to your word, would you cause us to forget it forever? In fact, would you protect me from saying it? Help us, Lord, now. We're not here to play games. We're going to look at a lot of women and children who get killed. We're not playing games, Lord. We want to know you. Show us who you are. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Our two points will be verses 1 to 27, the conquest of Jericho, and then the big wide lands, chapter 6 to 12, as a preview, the conquest of Canaan. The conquest of Jericho and the God of conquest. That's what we'll look at. First, verses 1 to 27. Let's make sure we've got this chapter in view as we then span out and look at the God of conquest. First, the conquest of Jericho. To unpack this passage, uh, we gave the church an outline of the book of Joshua months ago. I encourage you to acquaint yourself with it. There are more copies, I think, on the welcome table. And it breaks down chapter 6, that outline, into three parts. Israel receives marching orders, verses 1 to 5. The procession is led by the priests with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle, verses 6 to 19. And then the wall miraculously falls and Israel captures Jericho, verse 20 to the end. First, verses 1 to 5, Israel receives her marching orders. Before we read this, I want to remind you there were no chapter breaks when the Bible was written. There were no verse references when the Bible was written. I think verses 1 to 5 is what the angel of the Lord said to Joshua from the end of chapter 5. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 6, I think, is his instruction to Joshua and through Joshua. Let your eyes fall on verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Joshua 6, 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, 
See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war encircling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall, shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people will go up every man straight ahead. I want your eyes to fall on verse 2. Done. I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and valiant warriors. The victory was won before the fight happened. Now, this is an interesting war strategy. It hasn't been employed by any other kings and military entities that I know of in human history. Wouldn't you say this is quite strange? In the previous chapters, we did read about Israel crossing the Jordan River. But even in that passage, we read that 40,000 men are dressed in their camo fatigues. They have their bullet sash across their chest. They have their machine guns in their hands. Obviously, I'm speaking contemporarily about what their warfare would have been like. These people have belts of grenades, 40,000 of them in Joshua chapter 4, verse 12. When they crossed the Jordan River, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, quote, in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken, about 40,000 equipped for war, Joshua 4, 13. Now it comes time to fight. What are these 40,000 plus the other tribes do put down all their weapons take off all their camo they get dressed to go to church and they have a worship service chapter 4 the soldiers are ready chapter 6 you get a marching band what's the deal the deal is that the commander of the army of the Lord who we saw at the end of chapter 5 is showing Joshua that the battle's already over before it starts. Because as I opened with, no matter what you think about him, I'm telling you the God of the universe has no opposition. You're not stopping him. You're not controlling him. When he decides to do it, it's done. Verses 1 to 5, God wants Joshua to know that the victory's over before it starts. The battles that Israel fought in the remaining chapters of the conquest narrative, chapters 6 through 12, are fought by Israel's armies, but this first battle is not physically fought by them, though there's a portion of the passage that, yes, they are involved in. God Himself is the warrior. He destroys Israel's enemies. He gives them the land that he had long ago promised to Abraham's offspring. So our first point is Israel receives her marching orders. It's verses 1 to 5. If you just skim the passage, I'll tell you what's there. Verse 1, the city of Jericho is besieged. Nobody in, nobody out. Verse 2, the victory is promised before the battle is fought. Verse 3, the order is to march around the city one time a day for six days. 
Verse 4, on the seventh day, you march seven times, seven laps. Then the priest will blow their trumpets, and all the people will shout, and the walls will come tumbling down. Now, I want you to envision it. That's what's in the verse, first four verses. I want you to envision it, though. You're in the situation room. You've seen pictures of that. President of the United States, he's in the situation room. He's got his cabinet, his commanders. They're sitting around the big table. They got the screen up on there. Let's imagine Joshua's in his situation room. It's about time to go to war. He gets all his commanders together. He rolls out on the big office table a map of Jericho. He's telling the guys the plan. He's got his big pointer stick, and he's showing each of the guys where they're supposed to go. First thing he says, now I know we've been practicing for battle. I know you've got all your infantry. I know you've got all your plans. Today, we will employ no V pattern. The next day, there will be no element of surprise. Eventually, Joshua would draw up some, some really shrewd and strategic battle plans when they finally defeat the city of Ai. But on Wednesday, there'll be no heavy bombardment. There will be no shock and awe. Thursday, no carpet bombing. Friday, no nukes. All we're going to do, six straight days, and again on the seventh day, seven times, we're going to have a marching band. But nobody's playing any instruments. They'll have them in their hand. We'll walk. We'll be totally silent. The last day, it'll be time to fight. Our warfare will not be our sword. It will be our vocal cords. We will shout. I don't know what you think about God's war strategy in this chapter, but I have to imagine that Joshua's commanders might have thought it a little odd. But the first victory in the book of Joshua, city of Jericho, I believe is designed this way so that it will be evident that the, the ultimate warrior in Israel is not Israel, but Yahweh. God saves. That's verses 1 to 5. Verse 6 to 19, the procession is led by the priest, and it's centered around a piece of furniture that is the Ark of the Covenant. Let your eyes fall on verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, let the seven priests carry the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And so it was. And it was so, pardon me, that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. Verse 10, when Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came to the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 12, now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them and the rear guard came up after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus, the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days, verse 15. Then on the seventh day, they rose early the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. 
At the seventh time, when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban, and all that it is, all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. 18. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban. Make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. All the silver and the gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Well, there's an important focus in this portion of the passage that is almost impossible to miss. The priests go before the ark. This is an indication that the most important factor for Israel's success was their fellowship with God. That's it. If Joshua had been in the Situation Room and rolled out his war map and done other strategic military strategies to try to take Jericho, I'm persuaded that they would have been thoroughly defeated, just like they are in the next chapter when this little podunk city of Ai does defeat them. The most important factor is the presence of God. Their success depends on their fellowship with Yahweh. These priests who are marching in front of the Ark of the Covenant, what's their job? Well, a priest's job, in summary, is to speak to God for men. A prophet's job is to speak to men for God. But priests represent people before God. And it's very important, it's imperative that the priests are prominent. People who beg God on behalf of his people to be merciful to them. That's their job. The most critical element is God among his people. These priests are a living, visible, touchable, seeable, hearable expression of the people's need for God. Their entire ministry was to represent Israel before God and to make his presence and known among them and make sacrifices on behalf of the people before God because of the sins of the people. This indicates that the most significant battle for Israel was not military, it was spiritual. That's the same today. So first is marching orders, second is priests and the Ark of the Covenant. But notice in verse 16, before we move on, that when the shout finally comes, why do you shout? To win? No. To receive what God has already won. Shout for the Lord has given you the city. Joshua tells them that before the first day, before they ever march, and then they go around and do it. Third and finally, to get the context of chapter 6, the walls fall. Verses 20 to 27. First look at just verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets, and the people heard the sound of the trumpet. The people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. This is the famous walls of Jericho came tumbling down. This is where it happens. It could have ended there. But instead, God gives us in the remaining part of the chapter 
who he is. So Jericho is conquered. Walls are flat. Armies coming in. There's nothing you can do to stop them now. You have no defense. But the rest of the chapter is what I want to major on for the remaining time we have together. That is the God of conquest. Who is he? Look at verse 21. It is a challenging verse. I've already read it at the very beginning. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Yes, this is a challenging passage, and for obvious reasons. They destroyed everything in the city? Men and women? Boys and girls? Young and old? Ox, sheep, donkey, everything with the edge of the sword? That's what it says. God's conquest, though, Is not because he had a bad day. God doesn't give these orders and carry out this extreme judgment on this pagan city sporadically. This is not an impromptu judgment. Not 40 years earlier in the book of Exodus, four generations earlier in the book of Genesis, God warned these people. He told them, judgment is coming. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God promised that he would judge the Amorites. That's these people. And for that long duration of time, many years, I said four generations, think about how much time they had to repent. One of their own number did repent. A harlot, a woman who had been used and abused by the wicked men of that city. She heard somehow of God's mighty act. She heard of his impending judgment, and she turned to God in faith. They could have turned too. Rahab didn't have special knowledge. She had obvious knowledge. Og and Bashan... God had wiped them out through the agency of Israel. All the kings, Rahab said, 31 of them, hearts melted when they knew that the God of Israel was on the march toward them. Rahab repented. They could have too. It's a challenging passage when you try to envision verse 21. If you see the bloodshed, It should do something to you. A.W. Pink said of verse 21, for several centuries the long-suffering of God had waited until, as Genesis 15, 16 says, the iniquity of the Amorites was full. Forty years before this, in the Exodus, the Lord solemnly threatened the Amorites He brought the sword of Israel as Israel marched all the way to the edge of the Jordan River. The Lord brought the sword of Israel to the border of Canaan. Jericho knew that Israel was camped on the other side of the Jordan River. They knew they were there. They knew they were coming in. They knew God's judgment was on its way. 
Pink writes, then withdrawing his hand for a time, God gave them further respite. But the period of waiting was now over. That united shout on the seventh day from Israel was a sign that the Lord would tarry no longer. The day of his wrath had come. All the guilty inhabitants of Jericho were made a solemn and awful sacrifice to divine justice. The Canaanites were ripe for destruction, and the Lord was pleased. Instead of destroying them by pestilence, which he had done in Egypt and could have done here to Jericho, Instead of destroying them by a famine, which he had done prior and could have done again. Instead of an earthquake like the sons of Korah. Instead of a devastating fire from heaven like Elijah on top of Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. He employed the Israelites as his executioners for his vengeance. Pink said, both for their warning and their instruction. And that for all who ever read these records. If an angel of the Lord had been commissioned to slay Jericho as he had done to Sennacherib's army in 2 Kings 19, who would have charged God with iniquity or cruelty? In all public calamities, even to this day, infants are involved and tens of thousands of people die in great agony every year. If you think, how could he? Let me just remind you that verse 21 is happening while we're sitting in this room. Many thousands, tens of thousands of people will perish into a Christless eternity before you walk out that door today. And God's been warning them for generations. These passages do raise questions. We do not mean to easily dismiss them, but we must start at the right place or we will end up at the wrong destination. The Bible is full of serious dealing with serious questions. God's not scared of your questions. He wants you to ask them. He prompts you. He provokes you. He instigates you to ask them. You should be thinking when you read your Bible, is there any injustice with God? If you don't ask that question, you're not reading it. That's actually a quote from a verse in the Bible. Is there any injustice with God? God's answer to that question, where that quote is found, Romans 9, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to do as he chooses? We're supposed to ask the questions, and I'm not saying it with emphasis to make you hesitant to ask, but I am saying it with emphasis because I want you to tremble When you ask, God wants you to ask the questions. It's that same chapter, Romans 9, that has turned many heads around where Paul quotes from the Old Testament, God speaking, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now what's wrong with that sentence? To contemporary ears and to the biblically illiterate and more fundamentally, the atheistic mind and heart, people who think that God has no right over any person to do anything other than what you think he should do is right, and if he does it any differently than you think he should do, then there is injustice with God, and you've measured him by your standard. 
There's actually absolutely nothing wrong with that sentence. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, when God said it. And he said it before they were born, when they were in utero, in their mom's belly as twins. In fact, if there's anything wrong with the sentence, God should have hated Jacob too. Because his name actually means deceiver. Jacob's a sinner just like Esau's a sinner. He was a scoundrel, but God, 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 the God of mercy, marched around those two little boys before they were born. And he decided to have mercy on one of them. And at great cost to himself. Seven days of marching, I wouldn't say is unmerciful. Day one, walk around the city. Judgment's coming. Day two, march around the city. Judgment is coming. I told you four generations ago, Genesis 15, 16, you will be destroyed if you do not repent. Rahab's a glowing example that God will have mercy on anybody who turns to him. You all deserve to perish, including Rahab. Day three, march around the city. There's time to repent. Four, time to repent. Five, more time to repent. Six, more time. Day seven, seven times. There's plenty of time for you to repent. When Jesus thinks about God's judgment, he asks questions like, do you think they're worse than you are? Luke chapter 13, Jesus said, after some Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with sacrifices, reported all that to Jesus. Jesus said to them, do you think that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they died and their blood was mixed with a sacrifice and a pagan ritual to basically mock God? Do you think that they were worse sinners because it was their blood and not the blood of the other Galileans? Jesus says, Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will also perish. Verse 4, Luke 13, 4, do you suppose, Jesus said, that the 18 people on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the people who live in Jerusalem? Now think about this. There's a silo, a grain silo. You've seen a lot of these in farmland around the city of Memphis, out in the outskirts. And it started to deteriorate. And one day the people are just out there doing what the people do. And the silo fell over and it killed 18 people. And Jesus says about that situation, do you think... They were worse culprits than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will also perish. When God's judgment strikes a people who are guilty like you are, your first response shouldn't be, well, obviously he killed pagan Jericho. Obviously a tower fell on those guilty people in Siloam. Obviously, those Galilean pagans were having their blood mixed with sacrifices. No, the first thought should be, why not me? Why didn't he kill me? Why am I still here? The issue of the Canaanite conquest needs to be framed beneath the light of God's character. I was wrestling hard this week for whatever it's worth and I reached out to lots of pastors to say I've read commentaries but I want to know what you think 
The brother who put together the outline of the book of Joshua that we gave you, David Schrock, responded to me and gave me uh, four reasons that he had thought about long ago when he was preaching through Joshua that we need to keep in mind as we think about Jericho and verse 21, women, children, young, old, all the way down to livestock, killed with the edge of the sword. These are his four considerations. Number one, the people in these cities are not innocent. They're guilty. Schrock said, Israel is not waging war for themselves. God is using them as a holy means of judging the idol-making. Now go read the backstory of the Amorites, sexually immoral, child sacrificing child sacrificing Canaanites. That's who they were. Like Assyria in Isaiah 10, Shrock said, Assyria would be a rod in the hand of God to discipline Israel when they also embrace false gods. So now Israel is the sword in God's hand meeting out his justice to Jericho. So the people are not innocent, they're guilty. Number two, God's judgment is not hasty but 400 years in the making. I've referenced that from Genesis 15. Number three, the judgment of Canaan is specific and very scripture-based. Schrock wrote, God's judgment also fulfills the words of Noah in Genesis 9.25, where cursed Canaan, that's Ham's son, because of Ham's actions toward Noah. Many have wrongly, I agree with Schrock, many have wrongly applied the curse to the nations and peoples from Africa, but this curse is fulfilled and brought to an end in the judgment of Canaan in Joshua and in the book of Judges. It's a very specific judgment on Canaan, fulfilling God's curse on Ham and his son. Finally, number four, Schrock said, genocide is not what is happening here. I mentioned titles of books a moment ago that people have written as they wrestle with Joshua 6 through 12. One of those book titles, Is God Guilty of Genocide? Genocide is not what is happening here. How do we know that? There's nothing racial or ethnic about this judgment. Genocide implies that God is opposed to some nations and he's partial to other nations. But as the Lord responded to Joshua, quote, I am neither for you or your enemy. You remember chapter 5? God is for God, and God is for his people, Jew or Gentile, who abide in faith. Schrock wrote, in Joshua, Rahab serves as a model of God's mercy to the Gentiles. Moreover, the hundreds of thousands of Jews who died in the wilderness in the previous generation testified that God is impartial toward Israel. This is not genocide. Well, I've leaned on so much help, I'm going to continue story time with Pastor Jordan. John Piper said, how was the conquest of Canaan just? He gives three responses. As we look back over redemptive history, we try to answer some troubling questions. It helps us to look deeper into God's purposes and the lessons that God has for us right now. Piper said, the first question is, how how can this unprovoked aggression of a foreign power against the Canaanites be justified. They were just sitting in their houses in Jericho. Israel came to them. Unprovoked aggression. How is this justified? Even to the point, Piper writes, where it's a cause for worshiping God. Should you worship him? If a nation did this today, Piper asked, shouldn't we oppose it with all our might? And the answer is yes. 
So Piper gives three responses. There was something unique in this period of redemptive history from the exodus to the, inhab- uh, to the conquest of Canaan. But even beyond that, from Moses to Jesus, that's a unique period in redemptive history. And Piper said, in this period, God's will was that his people would have a national form with a land. He willed that it be a political body, not only a religious one. In this way, God typified that the land is his and foreshadowed that one day his people will inherit the whole earth. Israel's just a prototype of what God's gonna do in the new covenant in another even more expansive way. And then third, Piper said, the second part of the answer, I'm sorry, second, Piper said, the second part of the answer is that as the unique people of God, the exploits of Israel were not her own doing, they were God's doing. God, according to chapter five, was the commander in chief. He gave all the orders and he fought the battles. Chapter six, chapter 11, chapter 23, God did it, God did it, God did it. And when they acted against God's orders, Israel was actually defeated, chapter 14. And then third, Piper said, this leads us to a third part of the answer, namely that the destruction of the nations of Canaan was not just a place to make for Israel, it was judgment on wickedness that was rampant in those nations. I know it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's a very biblical pill. Deuteronomy chapter nine, God already said he would judge every pagan nation. Nine chapter four, nine chapter five, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord brought me in to possess the land. No, Israel was going to be judged too because they imbibed pagan gods. Piper said, if we keep these things in mind, we can view the conquest of Canaan as a great demonstration of God's holiness and faithfulness. Now, here's where I want to conclude. Like, Man, God give me a lot of uh, what other people have to say. Let's read the remainder of the chapter. And I... I said earlier, this shows us the God of conquest, not only in righteous judgment, this shows us the God of conquest in gracious salvation. Who is this God? Look at verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house, bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father, her mother, her brothers, and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver, gold, articles of bronze and irons they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. 25, however, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Verse 26, then Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying, cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho with the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Now in verse 26, let me just start there and then back up to Rahab and her house being saved. Verse 26 tells us whoever rebuilds the city of Jericho is going to be cursed with a specific curse, the loss of their firstborn. Remember me saying 
For 400 years, God had warned the Amorites, you will be destroyed if you don't repent. That's exactly what happened. Right here, there's another warning. If you rebuild the city, your firstborn will die. Well, the word of the Lord never returns void. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, a man named Hael, a Bethelite, rebuilt Jericho. Guess what happened? Son number one and son number two died. Hael the Bethelite was a fool because he didn't learn from the conquest of Jericho and all of Canaan that God will not be mocked. His word will never return void. But how many Hael's are there in the world today? Total foolishness. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. How many fools are there in the world today? Not one word of all that God had spoken, Joshua 24, failed. Everything he said came to pass. And today there's people like, oh yeah, God will never do all that stuff that all you Christian people say God's going to do. Well, verse 26 proved true in 1 Kings 16. This is where we close. God's conquest is so full of gracious salvation. Can you see Rahab scurrying around the city? Seven days while Israel marches, can you see her running around? Where's she going when she's running around the city? She's going to her dad's house. She's going to her mom's living room. We're told straight up she's going to all her relatives. Aunt, uncle, cousins. I can almost hear her voice. What's she saying to them? If you come to my house, you're safe. You see all those people out there? You see all those warriors? You see those priests? You see that box? You see the Ark of the Covenant? I'm telling you, the God of Israel is right outside of our wall. Judgment's coming. She's at her cousin's house, and she's saying, if you stay at your apartment, you're doomed. You cannot stay in your own house. You must come to the only safe place in the city, and I'm telling you, it's my house. It's the scarlet cord that's out the window that indicates this is the place of salvation. Somehow, someway, she was able, we can tell from this passage, to convince her entire family to leave their house and come to her house. And they were saved. As Brian pointed out a few weeks ago, the only safe place in the city of Jericho was ironically the only place where the judgment of God fell, the wall. The very spot where God's wrath fell on day seven when the trumpets blasted and the people shouted, the wall, the very spot where the wrath of God fell was the very spot where Rahab's house was. This is such a picture of the cross of Christ. God's been encircling your city your whole life. Judgment is right outside your wall. The only safe place for you is the place where his wrath falls. You must hide yourself from judgment in his heart of mercy. 
And that judgment falls at the cross, and the mercy is the man who hung on it. If Rahab would not have been saved, neither would you. The application is, you have to get in Rahab's house too. And like Rahab, if you get in her house, there will be evidence you will live with her people. When I say you have to get in Rahab's house, I'm not thinking thousands of years ago in the city of Jericho. I'm thinking of a thousand years later. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. So Rahab didn't go on to continue to be a prostitute. She repented of her sin. She became a chaste woman. She eventually married a man named Salmon. They together had a son named Boaz. Boaz became the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed became the father of Jesse. Jesse became the father of David. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that Rahab was in the lineage of Jesus. And I'm saying to you, if Rahab never would have been saved, you wouldn't have been either. Because there would have been no Savior. God saved her so that through her could come the Messiah that God had long ago promised to send who remarkably was her Savior. The warrior who dropped the walls was the Savior who won her heart. Her offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Redeemer. There was mercy, one commentary said, mingled with judgment. Even when the sword was punishing the guilty Canaanites, there was so much time afforded for so many to repent. Rahab was spared so that you could be saved. Hebrews 11 says it plainly, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. Get in Rahab's house. Live with her people. From this day forward, Rahab lived the rest of her life with God's people. She became an Israelite. And so I close with this. God is encircling the city. If you think Jericho's a problem, I actually have worse news for you. Every unbeliever will perish. David Schrock, who responded with those three observations, gave a fourth one that I didn't read to you, and this is it. The physical destruction of these cities pales in comparison to the eternal judgment that Jesus will render on the last day. You know what happened when Jericho fell? When all those people died? Not one king in Canaan repented. They knew they were next. They knew God was coming for them too. They could have turned also. There's this question about the Gibeonites. Maybe there were some people. But on the whole, 31 and 0, God wiped them all out, starting in the north, south, systematically moving to the north. They had all kind of time to repent. God is encircling the city right now. 
A.W. Pink closed his comment that I read earlier with these words that I didn't read. In short, every man who reads the account of Joshua and the awful judgment of God has been led in a deeper sense to the evil of their sin and warned to repent and seek mercy from the Lord and to glorify his divine wisdom and goodness in the sending of the Savior who has come to save you from his judgment. He ends it this way. The impenitent are emboldened to blaspheme while they unbelieve. That's what happened to all the people of Canaan. Judgment is coming. No natural force, Jordan River, no man-made obstacle, Jericho Wall, is going to stand in the way of God performing his purposes. And at the cross of Christ, judgment fell. And if you'll get in Rahab's house, her son, her great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, if you'll get in her house, if you'll get in her family, come here, aunt, come here, uncle, come here, cousins, come here, relative, everybody's got to be in this house. Everybody's got to be in this family. If you'll get there, you're saved from the wrath of God forevermore. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do pray that when Christ comes in judgment, that we and our loved ones will be found in him. You have definitely given everybody here more than ample time to turn to him. And Lord, we praise you that like happened in Canaan, there is coming a day when you will expel from the whole earth all evildoers, all unbelievers. It's only right that you do that because of who you are. We agree with you, Lord, that your judgment is just. And we affirm, as your word teaches, that it will be complete. We believe that when Jesus comes back, as you describe him with mighty angels and flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on everybody who doesn't know God and everybody who does not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We affirm with you that all unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of your power, 2 Thessalonians. And so we ask, Lord, that we would be on the side of the conquering warrior and that it would be obvious because we link our life like Rahab did with your people. Thank you, God, for your mercy because nobody here, especially the one leading this prayer, deserve it. Thank you, Father, that you are gracious, that you love to save, and that Rahab's offspring is the great evidence that you are a God of mercy and you give ample warning. Oh, draw us to Jesus. We ask this for your glory in his name.